There are, before every one of us, two pathways. One is the path that leads to living together with others, and the other is the pathway that leads to being all by oneself. We don't get there all at once, but we will ourselves be tempted to take the kinds of little steps day after day that end with us being by ourselves. And we also, on the other hand, can take a different path where we experience the kind of blessings that God reserves and gives to those who actually experience living with others deeply. And this morning, I'm going to push you toward the path of blessing because it is not an overstatement to say that those who, by degrees, isolate themselves from others eventually end up all by themselves, slowly and steadily living a life that is like dying. Two, two pictures. Yvette Vickers, in 1958, Yvette Vickers came on the scene when she was the star of the Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Anyone see that movie? She was a sensation in her day. She became a Broadway star. She got roles on all of the television westerns. She was featured in men's magazines. Yvette Vickers was beautiful, talented, profoundly popular. Everybody wanted to be around her all the time but she was never really connected with anyone. In 2011, her neighbor found her in her house where she had died. In the very place where she passed away, the coroner determined one year earlier. There wasn't a single person to check on her for a year. At the memorial service, her brother spoke. His first words were, I thought there'd be more people here. It was just a few family members who had lost touch with her over the years. And when he finished, the only other person to speak was the priest. This is a picture of dying alone. Contrast that with Stamatis Moriadis, a Greek man who came to the United States in 1943 after being injured in the war. He settled in Port Jefferson, New York with an enclave of fellow Greeks who all got into manual labor working together side by side. In 1967, one day on the job, he noticed he was really short of breath. The doctors found lung cancer. They gave him nine months to live. He got a second opinion, six months. So he decided to go back to Acaria where he grew up so he could be buried where his ancestors were buried. And by the way, he thought the funeral will cost less and it'll save some more money for my wife. The first few weeks he's there, he's in bed, his mom and his wife taking care of him. On Sundays, they walk him up the little hill to the chapel where his grandfather used to be a priest. His childhood friends hear that he's back and every day they come over for conversation and they always bring a bottle of local wine. Stamata says, I might as well die happy. It's springtime, so he plants a garden to pass some of the time. Nine months goes by, he's not dead. And so he starts a routine. That plot of land that used to be the family vineyard, he goes to work in it all day. Every evening, it's dinner with the neighbors, home-cooked meal. As the sun sets and goes down, it's off to the local tavern to play dominoes with his friends until after midnight. He lives with others. This is Stamatis Moriatus in 2012, 97 years old. This photo appears in an article that's called Ikaria, the island where citizens forget to die. 
And researchers want to know why, why didn't he die? He never went to the doctor. He was cancer-free. Why, 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 why this longevity? They said it must be something in the diet. And one of the locals said it's not what we eat. It's how we eat together every day. She added, in Greek, there's no word for privacy. Here, we all know one another. That's living together. Whatever you believe about God, the truth is, every one of us here knows, we know it deep down inside, that life was meant to be lived together, and we dread being alone. And you can be alone even when you're in a crowd, can't you? What I will tell you as a pastor is that God made you for this path and not that one. And, and each one of us, each one of us is in the position of deciding which one it will be, always. Whether the people that we love and cherish are there with us or not, it's up to us to decide. Will we be people dying alone or living together? The habits that we nurture are the things that are going to answer that. It's not the disposition that we are naturally given or not. It's the steps that we take little by little, day after day. Either patterns of behavior that lead step by step to dying alone or the patterns of living that lead to joyful communion with others and life together. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 133. The text will be up here if you don't have a Bible. But this is a claim about the supreme value of life together. Look at verse 1. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. There is nothing that is as valuable as life together with others. It is a supreme value. It is how God made you. It is what you were designed for. When the creator crafted you by, uh, just as you are with this heart that you walked in here with this morning, it was in his mind that you would be a person who lived together with others. When you find that, when you discover it, it is supremely good. Before these were words in our Bible, they were actually lyrics of a song. A song that would have been sung by religious pilgrims who were leaving their homelands, their country villages in the Judean countryside to make their way to Jerusalem for the festivals of God's people, to worship God at the temple, to remember and celebrate the good things that God had done. The people of Israel walked together shoulder to shoulder, and as they walked, they sang songs. Songs that express the truth that their hearts knew deep down inside. And the truth is there's nothing as good as walking beside someone singing songs as you go toward God with them. And this was one of those pilgrim songs. Let's take our time with every word in this opening line. Kindred. Kindred means family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. The people who sang this song, some of them were related by blood, but others were not. They were fellow villagers who came together. But when they stood side by side, they believed that God was their common father, and so they were sister and brother. And they knew there's something valuable when you can look at someone who you're not related to and say, this is my kindred. When that happens, that's a picture of what it looks like to live together in unity. In its simplest sense, that phrase just means to be with one another. To be authentically together. Do you know what that's like? I mean, not the kind of together where you're concerned and self-conscious and afraid. What will they think of me? But being together in a way that doesn't just tolerate, but rather accepts the other person for who they are. Life together in unity is like that. No masks, no shame keeping you apart. 
No concern for what do they think about me, really. And, and no concern to judge them. You're just together. When that happens, the songwriter says it is pleasant. It's easier to breathe. Your stress level goes down in a way that it's actually physically good for you. Do you know what it's like when, when you're with friends and you say, we, we really need to get going, and then another hour passes and you're still together? And you're laughing too loud, and you're staying up too late, but you're having such a good time together. That is pleasant. He even adds, and this is the key to this opening line, he even adds, that is very good. The Hebrew word there is tav. It means good in the sense of right rather than wrong. Listen now, not just the difference between good and bad, but right as opposed to wrong. Have you ever toasted someone and said, mazel tov? That Hebrew word there means uh, good in the way that God intended, the way the creator designed it, ordered rather than disordered, appropriate and fitting according to God's vision rather than out of order and broken. And here, this song declares that when we live together in unity, it is not just pleasant, it is good as God designed. It's according to divine order. It's, it's as he intended when he crafted all of us as it was meant to be. When fellow travelers through life, think of yourself now, and the people that are close to you, and the people that you're not yet close to, but you know deep down you should be, when you are walking through life with them shoulder to shoulder, and it becomes like family, where you know they accept you and you accept them. It's not only pleasant, it's tav as God meant it to be. According to the pattern that God envisioned when he made us, think of the implications for a minute. If you're isolated, it's not only bad, it's wrong. If you're alone, it's not only unpleasant, it's not as God designed it. It's a life that is fundamentally out of order to be alone together. Do you know what I mean when I say alone together? I feel alone up here. Can you help me? Do you know what it's like? <laughs> Does anybody? Can we talk about the, the habitual isolation for a bit? Let me start by just saying a word to my introvert friends. There is nothing wrong with being an introvert. If you're an introvert, would you raise your hand? Of course you wouldn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy time alone is good. Time where you can reflect on life and get perspective. Right? There are people who are so extroverted, they never have the time to just be quiet and settle down and to hear from God. There's, there's something really healthy in not always being with others. But isolation as a habit is, is, is qualitatively different from that. It's the kind of alone that comes when a person habitually avoids never goes out, never initiates, only can see what other people aren't doing for them, and so they stay away, blaming others. They don't even answer the door when grandma rings the doorbell. Do you know that kind of impulse? Some introverts get trapped in that miserable prison, and it's horrible. It's horrible to behold. But listen now, it's not only introverts who experience this habit. I would say it's actually more common and more dangerous for the extroverts among us who practice an internal kind of isolation, which is, in terms of its outcome, just as bad as the outward retreat from people. I mean the habit of putting walls up on the inside so that you effectively close the real you off from all of the people you are around. Does anybody know what that's like to do? Yeah? It's not hard to do. 
It's, it's, there's an awful lot of pressure on us these days actually to do it because we're so afraid of what other people will think of us if we happen to let out that we don't agree with them about this or that idea or conviction. You know that pressure, don't you? And, and it's very easy to develop in this world that we live in the habit of always managing the exterior that we show so that we don't get rejected or, or canceled by someone or, or we don't have to feel the pressure of not fitting in. And so you, and I know this because I can do it too, can easily become people who are together but alone because we've learned to hide the true me away from others. If you want an illustration, I'll tell you right now, it's going to happen today if you stick around after we're done with worship and don't just rush off. If you, if you start to talk with some folks, somebody's going to ask you, how are you doing? And in that moment, there's going to be a test as to whether you're able to be the authentic you because inside, uh, many of you are going to think, how am I doing when I got up this morning, I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I thought an old man had broken into the bathroom and was waiting to destroy me. <laughs> and, 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 and last night before I went to bed, I thought about all the dreams I had when I was younger, and none of them have materialized. Yeah, I look back and I remember the passion that I used to have, and I believed that it would get greater as time went along, but now it just seems to be further ahead of me. And, and all of the wishes and hopes that I'd had for the people that I care about, I can't do anything to control those. And the few relationships I have, they're shallow. I barely even have time to clip my fingernails. You're thinking all this on the inside, but you say, I'm fine. How are you doing? And what do they say? Oh, I'm fine too, but they're thinking the same thing as you on the inside. You see this pattern that we develop in social settings. Now, please, 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 don't go out after church and tell everybody all the misery that you're suffering with, okay? That would make a very awkward time of get-together after church. On the other hand, when you practice hiding your inner life, because you have to in social settings, when you get in the habit of withholding, when it's your pattern of behavior to put on the best possible face and never let anyone really into what's going on in here, it doesn't take long for you to be on the path of habitual isolation. And that's the path that ends in death. And you'll, you'll be pressured, certainly, to do that, not just in social settings at, at the church, but at work, because you have to be succeeding for the people around you, or in your family, because you'll tell yourself, they need me to be this, or with your friends, because you'll be afraid, what will they think of me if I'm not there? Especially it happens at church. We live with tremendous pressure to manage our appearances because of the pressure that's on us to be someone who maybe we are not in the moment. Listen, what else is the whole of life of mortals but a sort of comedy in which the various actors disguised by various costumes and masks walk on and play, each one his part, until the manager waves them off the stage? That was the qu question asked by Erasmus in 1511. You maybe know the version that Shakespeare spoke, right? All the world's a stage, and we are merely players. And then maybe you know from a few decades ago, performers and portrayers. Anyone? Rush, limelight, performers and portrayers. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm connecting right now with one or two people, but that's it. <laughs> we, live, we live in an environment that's like a stage everywhere. And there's all kinds of pressure on us to be this person or that person. And sometimes we are, but other times we're not. And so in those moments, we have to decide, am I going to pretend? And, and for most of us, we pretend. Do you know the word person? That comes from the Latin persona, which originally was a theater term for the mask that you wore. It's in our language that we pretend. 
And, and we can, and when we do, long, long enough, eventually, we don't even know who we are. Nobody else knows who we are, and we are isolated. Even if we are with others, we may not live like Yvette Vickers, but we do know what it's like to be dying on the inside alone, languishing in isolation, hiding from others, and, and, and this is the truth now. Walking on that path of chronic isolation, at the very least, will keep you from ever being truly happy. It'll starve your soul. It cuts you off from joy. And more importantly, according to the Bible, it's wrong. It's wrong. And this is the most important thing I want to say to you really this morning, is that you don't have to walk on that path. Instead, the path to life is open to you. The door to the kind of life that you were meant to have is wide open for you. Let's take a look at what that life looks like back in Psalm 133 because the psalmist actually describes what it's like, how it's pleasant when kindred live together in unity with two similes. The first one comes in verse two. This is how life is good when it's together. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard on the beard of Aaron running down over the collar of his robes. Aaron was the holiest figure amongst the people of Israel in his time. He was the first high priest. This is the man who was set apart by God for the holiest of all missions, to go into the presence of God, to hear from God, to bring God to the people, and then to hear from the people their confessions, their needs, and bring those to God. Only the high priest could do this. Aaron was the high priest, and the way he was prepared for his task was through the anointing that he received with the sacred oil. Uh, it was oil that was so expensive because the ingredients had to be imported from Persia and Arabia and, and ancient Iran that the, the cost of this was beyond any person to afford. The temple offerings had to pay for this anointing oil. And when Aaron was anointed for his mission, it was a dab of the finger in the oil and a dab on his head. And what this author wants you to think of when you think of what it's like to live in life together is the most holy and precious thing like this anointing oil, but not the dab of a finger. Look again. So much put upon the head that it runs down upon the beard and through the beard onto the collar of his robes. That is an image of an excess of the most holy and precious thing that this man can grasp in the whole world of imagery that's available to him. And what he's saying to us is that when you experience life together, it is the holiest thing you can imagine, the most precious thing that's way beyond any person to afford if they wanted to purchase it. And it's not just a little of it, it's an excess of it, so it's pouring out all over the place. And it's the kind of gift that is so holy it could prepare a man to be in the presence of God. That's what it's like when you experience life together. Can you see it? Does your heart want that? It was made to. Here, let's look at the second simile. This is verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, where there, for there the Lord ordained his blessing life forevermore. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain that is known in this region when this poem was written. It's 9,100 feet above sea level. If you were in Jerusalem and you looked north past the Jordan River, you could see its snow-covered peaks. It has snow on it all year round. When the air cools at night in the hot summer months, everywhere around it's dry and barren. Nothing's growing. But around Mount Hermon, 
that cool night air causes the snow to evaporate so that in the morning, the dew falls on the slopes and in the valleys around it, and it's like rain falling every single morning without a drop actually falling. The dew sustains life around that mountain and in that valley so that otherwise impossible growth flourishes. Can you picture that? The mountains of Zion, those are the hills around Jerusalem. Nothing grows there especially not in the hot summer months. In the rest of the year, maybe. But in the hot summer months, nothing grows there because there's no snow on those peaks so that dew could fall. It never falls. And the only way, now did you notice what he says? The dew of Mount Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion? Mount Hermon is 120 miles north of of the mountains of Zion. And that is an impossible thing to happen. And that's the author's second point. When we dwell together in unity, that which is too good to be true and otherwise absolutely impossible becomes a reality as if the dew from 120 miles north goes all the way down here so that things which would otherwise die will finally grow. When you dwell together in unity, you can imagine what would be the best thing that I could dream of with others and what happens with the miracle that God provides is even better and beyond that in that it provides for growth which would otherwise be absolutely impossible. When we receive the gift that God gives us in life together. It enables otherwise impossible vitality in growth. Has anyone here ever experienced that kind of miraculous gift that comes with life together? Anyone? Help me. It doesn't last that long, does it? But it's so precious when you have it. You all want it because you were all made for it. And listen to me now. The door to that kind of life stands before every one of you right now and it is wide open. And it is open because of what Jesus has already done for you. When God came in Christ, it was to die for our sin and your sin separated you forever from God and other people. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, he dealt with your sin in such a way that the door to life together is now wide open for every one of you. Because when he died on the cross, the legal record with its demands against you were taken away and nailed to the cross. It says that in Colossians. He did that. He died and rose again for you so you would live for him. It says that in 2 Corinthians. And living for him means at least living together with others so that you embrace all of the blessings that come with the gift that comes because Jesus died for you, gave himself to you, so you can live for him together with others. If you do not regard him as Lord, if you're not ready to trust him, then you are going to be stuck here at the fork in the road. But if you would be willing to open your heart to him and trust him, and by that I mean entrust yourself into his hands. If you were willing to look at him and say, he is my Lord, I am his servant. Everything that I have is his. I receive the gifts that come from him as I acknowledge my desperate need for him. If you do that, you are a person who is twice born and then you can get busy walking on the road of life. And that's the thing that I want for every one of you more than I want anything else. If you've made that choice before in your life, you can get stuck again on the road, can't you? And so it's time to be third born or fourth born or whatever, but to once again regard Jesus as your Lord and say, I receive and accept what you have done for me so that I can walk into life with you. Would you do that in your heart? Yeah. How does Jesus' death do this for me? Listen, 
Jesus' death overcomes the separation that you would always feel from others because, first of all, it deals with shame. It deals with your shame. And I'll tell you what, that's the principal thing that keeps us hiding our true selves from others because we're ashamed of what we've been. And you might think, I I thought I was the only one who lives with that. No, most of us live with that sense that there is something profoundly wrong with me, and so we hide it away. But Jesus comes and says, there is, there was something profoundly wrong with you, but I took that away when I was crucified on the cross. You're not defined by what's wrong with you anymore. You're defined by being my son, my daughter. You are liberated and free from that. It's gone. Forget about it. Keep going forward. Show your true self to others. If they won't accept you, then forget them. Does that seem like too much to imagine Jesus saying? He would say, forget them for the time being. He never forgets anybody. But if you can't be the real you around someone, then find someone else. And then you will be free from shame because of what Jesus did. Here, there's another way that Jesus' death frees us from separation. You know, Jesus is the true judge. And when I try to judge other people, it separates me from them. And I chronically try to judge other people. Does anybody else have enough courage to admit that in here? Yeah. And so here, Jesus comes to you and says, hey, uh, fellow, you don't need to judge them anymore. That's my job. You can get down off of the judgment seat and be with everybody else. All of you, all, all of us, I am judged by Jesus, thank God, and not by somebody else. And when I remember that, I'm not separated from people by trying to be their judge. I'm with everybody by equally being judged by Jesus. And thank God for that, because he is the most gracious judge there ever could be. He frees me to be with others by dealing with my shame, by taking me out of the seat of judgment. Here, this is the last thing I'll say about it, and then we'll come back. He also frees me from the separation that comes from self-centeredness. Anybody else habitually self-centered? Yes, you all are. Say yes, yes. When I accept Jesus, he comes and he says, it's my time now to rule you from the center of your heart. And he displaces me because Jesus is the selfless sovereign who is the ruler of the universe and chooses for his throne every human heart that's willing to trust him. And when he's there on my heart and on the throne of your heart, why then we're not there in the center anymore and all of the separation that comes when I try to live for me and get everything for myself, that goes away and now I'm free to regard you as someone that I will seek your well-being as we mutually benefit one another by choosing no longer to be just about me but rather with, with the grace of God to be about us all together. Jesus death for us, frees us from loneliness, from isolation, and it makes all of that go behind us so that we are free to move forward in life together. How shall we do it? And this is a very practical question, and I mean to put before you some practical guidance for how to begin living together, because at this point, I'm convinced you're all ready to go down that path. Are you? Yeah. What do we do? That practical question How do we live life together? Has been asked for as long as people have gathered together. And and the scriptures make this plain because especially if you look at the New Testament and the, the writings in the New Testament that were delivered to communities like this community with various people gathered together trying to figure out how to live in faith to Jesus, you'll see there's plenty of guidance for how to live life together. Here's one place that is particularly pointed, I think. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 offer this concrete guidance. Take this to heart, every bit of it. Look look at what he writes. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but 
all the more, excuse me, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Does anybody see the day approaching? The day which is approaching all of us is the day on which there will be no more freedom for us to choose how we will use the time that God has given us. Every day that we live through, that day is one day closer, and it is approaching. And the guidance here is, as long as you can acknowledge that fact, as long as you see it approaching, do whatever you can do, whatever is within your power, to choose no longer to indulge in the habit of neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. It was already a habit back then. Don't, don't do that. Don't, don't habitually neglect meeting together any longer. But instead, be strategic. Consider how not to get love for yourself, but to position other people to be better at loving. Look at that phrase. Consider how to provoke one another on to love. Imagine if more of us did that. If we, we thought, how can I help that other person love better? Uh, how can I encourage them to be engaged in good deeds in the world? Every one of you has someone right now who God has put in your life and God is waiting for you to be living together with them by being strategic about helping them receive love, helping them do good things, encouraging uh, all of us in our hearts in this moment to be people who choose habitually to be together. It's what Jesus died for. It's why he gave his life for us. It's why we've been gathered together here so God would push us to be truly together, to take off the masks, to be real and quit pretending, to drop the persona and be the son or daughter of God that Jesus has freed each one of us to be together. How to do it? How, how will you do that practically? I've got four steps that I'm going to give you at the end here. I know there's some note takers here. It's time to get the notes out. And I know it. Okay? Here we go. You're going to write this. Number one, this is how to, how to actually begin moving uh, together. The first thing to do is to see and be seen. Do you know that you can go through the whole day and never look at another person in the eyes? It's easy to do. You notice I'm like staring you right in the eyes right now. That's a, I probably went. But it's easy to do. To be together means you actually look at another person face to face. And, and listen to me now. You let them be who they are. You see them, not who you want them to be. And the only way for this to work is if you're willing to let them see you. They cannot be truly vulnerable with you if you're going to be guarded with them. But listen, if you do it, if you look at another person truly and let them be who they are, your daughter, your son, your friend, your spouse, the, the neighbor, the person you're going to hang out with later on today, you look at them and you let them be who they are, you will find something holy and precious behind their eyes. God made us to see one another and to let ourselves be seen. That's the first step. If you'll do that, here's the second step. You must hear and be heard. That is, you let that other person express who they are with words. And you're going to have to count on them to be true. They're going to have to tell you, I haven't told you this before, but I've been carrying this shame of mine. I need somebody to tell. I'm so terrified of this thing, and I haven't been able to talk about it. Would you listen to me? I'm really disappointed in you for something. I need to tell you. Then you just need to open your ears. You need to hear them. And you must be willing to let them hear you. You have to be heard. You see so that you can hear, and you show so that you also can be heard. This is the community that God made us for. It's simple. 
to see and hear, but it's hard to see and hear. And it doesn't happen unless you intend it, unless you work at it. If you take those first two steps, the third one that I have for you is going to be a challenge. And that is you must be willing to help and be helped. Because every single person you hear and see is carrying a heavy burden. There are exactly zero exceptions. Everybody is carrying a heavy burden. And if you will open your eyes and ears and they divulge to you where they are, you must be willing to help. Now, somebody here is thinking, I've got no energy or power to do it. I can't. Listen to me. You will find that the power of the Holy Spirit floods your heart with divine strength if you will open your eyes and ears to someone who needs help because God's power is made perfect in our weakness when we open ourselves to love those who we are willing to look at and hear. Did you hear that? You have more strength than you know. It's just that you're trying to use it on the wrong person if you're only ever looking out for yourself. But you let yourself be responsible for another human being and you are doing God's work in that moment. You are loving the Lord Jesus Christ in person when you help someone else out who's struggling and when you let yourself be helped because it has to be reciprocal. It can't be just one way. If it's only ever them helping you, pretty soon they're gonna feel superior to you and then it's gonna all turn on its head. But you must also be willing to be helped. You must be able to say, hey, I need to tell you what I need now. And when you have that reciprocity, between two genuine human beings, no masks, who are hearing and seeing and helping, then the fourth, fourth thing which you must do is you must enjoy. It may sound like a strange thing for someone to tell you that you have to do. But you do, you have to enjoy. I think some of us don't let ourselves enjoy anything at all in life. Have you ever been surprised at how grumpy you are? I have. Sometimes, why am I so grouchy? And then I decide, let me be joyful. And that freedom is the freedom that's ours at every step of the pathway that we take when we're actually living life together with others. And that also is your responsibility. Maybe you could think of someone right now. Let's be really practical. Maybe you could think of someone in this moment that God is calling you to look at. You haven't looked at them in a while. Or here. Or someone that God is calling you to... Uh, open yourself to, and, and would you picture for a moment just enjoying time together? Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a community group. If you're not in a community group, you should get in one. Uh, maybe it's, it's in a relationship that you've had that's been kind of surfacey, but you're going to take it to another level. If you will choose to move toward that, you will begin developing the habits of life together, which is like the ho most holy and precious thing that you can experience, which will bring impossible growth and life, and which will bring joy in your heart, which is what God made you for. What do you say? Would you take those steps? Yeah, amen. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of time together in worship like this, for the pleasure it is to consider your word together as we come to the scriptures. I ask that in the moments in this time together where you've spoken to our hearts, that you would make our hearts good soil and you would plant your own calling into our hearts like a good seed that would grow and bear good fruit. Especially this morning, I ask for the fruit of life together for all of us. I pray that we would leave behind those habits that keep us apart and keep us isolated. And step by step, we would take a movement forward toward life with one another as you intended us to be. 
I thank you for the opportunities that are ours each day to become the kind of people you've called us to be. Inspire and move and fill us to be those kinds of people we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.